today, Matthew 21. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 22. It's a long passage, but this is church. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were on, uh, uh, followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to them, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We come to you in this place because you are king. You are enthroned over our lives, over our city. God, and we come to you on behalf of not only ourselves but all of the churches meeting in the coastlands, not only the other reality churches, Santa Barbara and Ventura, but we think of Christ Church, Carpinteria, Carpinteria Community Church. Lord, we think of all these churches that we have relationships with, that you would bless them this Palm Sunday, that Jesus would be enthroned over your people no matter where they meet, no matter what building, what parking lot, what street corner. God, we pray that you would be king in this place, that you would turn our hearts to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I shared a story recently about the time I finally took seriously the responsibility of praying for my parents' salvation. It was January of 2006. And a few weeks after this commitment I made to the Lord, out of nowhere, my father was diagnosed with cancer. 
And I remember going into the, the, the bathroom in my house and screaming to God, this is not the way this was supposed to happen. You were supposed to save him, not kill him. I was furious. It felt like a sick joke. And then two weeks later, on the same day, my mom and my dad gave their life to Jesus. I went back into that bathroom and I repented in a puddle of tears. We should expect great things from God, church. We should expect wonderful, great things from God, but God doesn't always move in a way that meets our expectations. But as we'll see, if we ever feel like God fails to meet our expectations, it's only because our expectations are too low. God is able to do far more abundantly anything we could ask or imagine. Jesus, give us greater expectations of what you want to do. In first century Israel, the people had lots of hopes and great expectations of a great salvation. They believed that God was going to be faithful to his promises in scripture that he made to his people. Specifically, there was one promise that shaped so much of their hopes. And it's the one promise that's most relevant to our passage today. In second Samuel seven, God makes King David a promise. He says that there would be a king, a son of David's, a son that would come from David's family who would reign on the throne forever. But scripture tells a story about how every king who ever came after David failed. They fell short. No matter how faithful these kings were, they were flawed. And the the flaw, the, the greatest flaw that they all shared was mortality. You can't be a king forever if you're dead. They all died. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, it has been 400 years since any son of David has ever reigned on the throne of Israel. They had been under a harsh foreign rule, under Roman occupation, but they believed the scriptures. They trusted that God would one day fulfill his promise to King David and set one of his descendants on the throne and establish God's kingdom forever. They believed that this son of David, also called Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek, they believed that this son of David would once and for all conquer their enemies, conquer Rome and establish peace in Israel forever. But their expectations, church, were too low. They were too low. God would send a king. God would send the son of David. But as our test, our text makes clear, Rome is not the enemy. Rome is not the enemy. Rome is not the problem. They are just a symptom of a much larger disease. God was planning a greater salvation, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. See, Matthew identifies in this passage that Jesus is the promised king. He is the son of David. Matthew demonstrates this royal identity of Jesus in at least three ways. First, he cites the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. He says all of this was to fulfill the prophecy. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And Jesus, as the one who is mounted on the donkey, is the king. He is the promised king. And the fact that Jesus intentionally orchestrates this 
says something even greater, that he himself believed that he was the promised king. See, I talk to a lot of people who will reference this and say, say that because it was orchestrated by Jesus, it feels contrived. But these are often the same people who tell me that they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus didn't say he was the Messiah. So what do you want? Do you want him to claim it or not? Make up your mind. He claims it. He claims it by orchestrating these. He is the king. And he knows what he's doing. Jesus' royal identity is also demonstrated in the celebration of the people. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means, oh, save. Save us, son of David. Save us, Jesus. The religious leaders take issue with this. As the, as the religious leaders, if anyone is the Messiah, if anyone is the son of David, they should have known first. They should have discerned it. Jesus should have come to them, worked out the plan so that they could go together with a united front. They don't know what's going on. People are shouting his praises. And so they take issue with it. And they go to Jesus and they say, are you hearing this? And Jesus says, absolutely, I'm hearing this. And he does not deter them. He doesn't shut it down. He approves of their assessment of him. In Luke's telling of the story, they come to Jesus and they say, make them be quiet. And he says, if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. Jesus must be praised. He must be praised as king. He is the promised Messiah. The wait is over. King Jesus is here. But there's a third way that Matthew identifies Jesus' royal identity in this passage. Jesus does two things that kings in the ancient world would often do after returning from a military victory. They would ride into the capital city to a great celebration. In this case, Jerusalem. And the people shouting and the palm branches laying in the road, laying their cloaks down to, to acknowledge their submission to their king. There's this great celebration. And this was something that kings would off, that would happen uh, in, the, in the ancient world because when your king went off to battle, there was no guarantee he was coming back. If your king came back, you were saved. Your king still reigns. This is good news. But if your king did not come back, then you would be visited by another king who would most likely destroy your city and enslave you. So this celebration, the king returning to Israel is good news. It is gospel. Your king reigns. There's an important example of this kind of kingly procession in scripture. In 2 Samuel 6, uh, after David is enthroned as king over all Israel, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God into Jerusalem to a great celebration. But it is not King David who is being celebrated. It's God entering the city. David is just a dancer. David is just a singer. David is just like everybody else. And David's wife is indignant because he dishonors himself to glorify God. We still have elements of this procession in our culture. Think of when a team returns to their home city with a championship trophy. The ticker tape parades. I'm still waiting for the one in LA for the Dodgers. But think about how, what this communicates about how we view athletes. 
They're kings and queens. They run the city. The second thing that Jesus does that would be expected of a returning king coming home after victory is that he goes to the temple. Kings would often return from victory to great fanfare. They would go straight to the temple and they would make sacrifices of thanksgiving to God for giving them the victory. But Jesus goes to the temple not to make sacrifices. In fact, when Jesus goes to the temple, he actually is acting more like an enemy king than he is the hometown king. See, they would, they would ride into the conquered city and they would ransack the temple. They would take the treasures out of the temple and they'd burn it to the ground. But Jesus doesn't destroy the temple. He doesn't desecrate the temple. He doesn't burn the temple to the ground. He cleanses it. He doesn't desecrate it by removing the treasures. He removes the things that are desecrating the treasures. He is removing the things that should not be there. And so these two scenes, the triumphal entry and the temple cleansing make clear that Jesus is acting as king. He is the king that they have been waiting for, but they did not expect him like this. Jesus rides in the town, but not in glory and power and pomp and circumstance on a war horse clad in royal armor after a military victory, but he rides in humbly and gently on a donkey. He shows up to the temple not to make sacrifices, but he judges the temple and the activity in the temple not to destroy, but to purify. Jesus is king. And as such, he is a savior and a conqueror. The Jewish people expected the son of David to be both of these things. They expected him to be savior and conqueror. He was supposed to save God's people and conquer their enemies. But here, both salvation and conquest come to the same people in the same city. And that's confusing. Imagine the shock that the people would feel. This is him. Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. And then he starts judging the temple and and cleansing the temple, overturning tables. Imagine if your friends and family threw a birthday party for you and everyone was having a great time and you were having a great time and they all sat you down and you're like, okay, you guys got me gifts. That's so nice of you. And then they one by one go around and tell you everything they hate about you. That would be confusing you would be so emotionally confused. Imagine the shock. What Jesus is doing is confusing, but Jesus is not confused. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. You see, scripture tells a story of two kingdoms. There are many kingdoms that rise and fall throughout the story of scripture, but there are two kingdoms that are continually at odds with one another since the very beginning. These two opposing powers are the kingdom of God and everyone who opposes the kingdom of God. We can call that the kingdom of rebellion. See, God's kingdom is where God reigns among his people and the kingdom of rebellion is everywhere God's kingdom is being resisted. 
in our hearts, in our communities, in our governmental structures, whatever it is, anywhere God's kingdom is being resisted is a part of this opposing kingdom. See, scripture highlights God in the very beginning as this beautiful, wonderful, wise, generous king who creates a world full of joy and peace and abundance. And then he entrusts it to the humans whose job is to care for creation the way God himself would care for it. And in this, God's image is manifest to the world. People are supposed to live in such a way that reminds the world that God is king. People should look at the way we live and say, this is what God is like. But then let us stray by the serpent. They rebelled against God's kingdom. They joined the serpent in his rebellion. They cast off his lordship and the world is full of darkness and pain and violence and emptiness. And beginning at the Tower of Babel and continuing through Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome... Scripture tells the story of humanity's greatest empires at odds with the kingdom of God and his people. But Israel made the mistake of equating the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Israel. They didn't understand that through their kingdom, through their very own hearts, these two kingdoms are at war. And so Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. Rome was just a symptom, something far more sinister. Jesus didn't come to overthrow any kingdom built by human hands. He's not here to overthrow any political power or agenda. Jesus is here to overthrow sin and sin does not discriminate. We all have in our hearts this war. This this decision to make, who will we follow? Every human heart must wrestle with the choice between following God as king or rebelling against God and building our own kingdom. I know this to be true because you are here today and you had so many other things to choose. You could have done anything today. But God has brought you here because in this moment, whatever is going on in your mind and heart right now, Whatever reason you think you are here, you are here because of Jesus. Because Jesus has brought you here. Because Jesus has news for you to hear. Because Jesus has something he wants to tell you. Jesus wants you to know that he is king and not you. And that's not a problem with you. That is the good news of Jesus. He's brought you here and you've made that choice. God is at work. You see, the test of knowing which kingdom you belong to is how you respond to Jesus. The test of knowing whether you are following after your own kingdom or following after the kingdom of God is how you respond to Jesus. Jesus is the litmus test. It's not about how good you've been. It's not about how uh, perfectly articulated your theology is. It's not about you being here today. It's how you respond to Jesus. See, verses 14 and 15 say that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw, how one, uh, saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. See, there are some, some of you who are here 
You're aware of your need for salvation. I've had conversations with you. Some of you are sick and you're aware of your need of salvation. Some of you have have physical illnesses, impairments. You are aware of your need for salvation. Some of you are struggling with the guilt and shame of your past. You're aware of your need of salvation. You're aware that you can't do it. You're aware that you need a savior. And to those who know they need a savior, then Jesus is salvation. He is that salvation that you need. But there are those also who are aware of all the reasons they don't need a savior. There are those who, whose wealth is enough to comfort or substances are enough to numb the pain or their success has given them everything they want in life or whose religious activity is enough to justify themselves to be all that they think they need. To those who don't believe they need a savior, who don't understand the real problem, who are looking to their own ability to rescue themselves, who blame others as the source of their problems in life, who only want God to bring judgment on their enemies, those who may even be able to point to a bunch of good things they do, but do not want to see their own need, then Jesus is a threat. King Jesus is a threat. You see, there were lots of religious activity going on in the temple but not bearing any fruit. This is the meaning of the fig tree. Jesus rolls up to the fig tree. It's in full leaf. Fig trees produce fruit and leaves at the same time. Trees in full leaf, there should have been fruit, but it was barren. And it symbolized the temple. All pomp and no circumstance. A lot of activity, but no fruit being harvested. They were using the temple as a place of business. They were selling sacrificial animals at what most scholars believe was an exorbitant uh, price. It was like food at Disneyland or baseball games. You're not going to get it any place else. They can charge whatever they want. You needed an unblemished lamb, a perfect sacrifice. You're here. You got to find it somewhere. They were charging outrageous prices. Jesus takes special issue with those selling pigeons. Because pigeons were reserved for the poorest of families. And so they were oppressing the poor in God's house. And then there was a double corruption taking place. The money changers, just like any currency exchange today, if you need to change your dollar for pounds or whatever else, they're going to charge you a fee. You could only spend Jewish coins in the temple. So you had to exchange your Roman currency for Jewish coins. And it was believed that they were pocketing the profit from that as well. So there was this double corruption. God's people being oppressed in the temple, making a profit, profiting on the worship of God. And church, we're not exempt from these temptations. Not only to be peddlers of the gospel, as Paul calls it, Not to just make a profit, but to make a name. We are not exempt from a desire to make a name for ourselves, to use holy things to exalt us. It would be very easy 
to see preaching the gospel and pastoring people as an opportunity to make a name for myself. But may the name of me burn and may Jesus be exalted. I will be forgotten, but Jesus will be remembered. Reality will be forgotten, but Jesus will be remembered. This is very tempting for people to see activities in the church as a way to influence the community. We cannot step on God to get what we really want. God is the greatest desire. Jesus is king. He's king of the world. He's king of Carpinteria, king of the coastlands, king of our heart and king of the church. All of life is all for Jesus. Everything we do here is all for the name of Jesus. We have a choice to make every single moment of every single day. Will I live for Jesus? Will I live for his kingdom? Or will I live for my own glory and reject him because he doesn't fit my categories? Ultimately, that's what happens here. Jesus doesn't fit their categories. He is king, but not a military conqueror. He is humble and gentle. He is our savior, but salvation doesn't come through the military victory, but through his self-sacrifice and victory over sin and death. Unable to reconcile their expectations with who Jesus is, the religious leaders join hands with Rome, demonstrating they have a shared king. Rome, the religious leaders, it's not about the kingdom, the empire of Rome. It's not about the kingdom of Israel. It was about the kingdom of rebellion. These two enemy nations joining hands and crucifying Jesus. But it's here on the cross that salvation and judgment of our God meet. The full weight of God's anger towards sin didn't fall on his people, but it fell on himself. Paying the penalty for our sin, Jesus sets us free from its oppression. Through the victory on the cross, we are ushered out of the kingdom of rebellion and into the kingdom of God. When a king would would overthrow a city, he would burn it to the ground, take people as captive, And when he would ride into his hometown, they would celebrate the slaves being brought into the town. But Jesus doesn't enslave us. He sets us free from the slavery of sin and invites us into freedom in the kingdom of God. A kingdom that transcends national or political boundaries or geography. God's kingdom is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. God's plan of salvation was not for Israel alone, but for all peoples. And we are given citizenship into this kingdom by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. We believe this. We believe this to be true and we entrust ourselves to King Jesus. Unlike any other king, any other son of David, Jesus didn't stay dead. But he rose from the grave, proving that even death, what human rebellion, do you know the greatest tool that human rebellion has to keep people in line is the threat of violence, is the threat of death. Jesus says, bring it. It has nothing on him. Then he ascends to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit comes into our life just like Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God riding into our lives in triumphal entry as a humble, gracious, but powerful king. He rides into the core of who we are. When Jesus comes into our lives, he does so humbly, peacefully, but powerfully. See, the the repent or perish messages that churches often preach, although true, they lack the heart of Jesus. The, The messages that the culture hears the church proclaiming often, this submit or be submitted is true, but it lacks the heart of Jesus. Jesus rides into our lives as a humble king, though he is our Lord, yet he does not lord it over his subjects. He has compassion and love and grace for his people. But when King Jesus comes into your life, he will make his way to those centers of your kingdom. Those sanctuaries that we've established in our own name, little temples that we've set up for our glory. And it may feel like he's making a mess of the place, just flipping tables. And it might feel painful, but he's not mad at you. He's mad at sin. He's mad at what sin and corruption has done to you. Don't close your heart to him because it's uncomfortable. Like cleansing the temple, he drives out that which ought not be there. Jesus is making you holy. He's cleansing you. Sometimes that means he's going to drive out things that are precious to us. And honestly, we don't know who we are apart from those things. And gently, graciously, lovingly, Jesus comes alongside you and says, I know who you are. You're mine. I bought you with a price. You are known by my name. And the Father God says, you are my son, my daughter, who I love, in whom I am well pleased. You don't have to be afraid to to lose those things you've been building your identity upon. Because if you are in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You are given a new identity. He's making all things new. Sometimes he comes in and he removes the things that we have not had power to get rid of ourselves. Those things that we do in the darkness that we're ashamed of and we can't seem to stop. Those besetting sins. We've tried everything. And King Jesus comes in where we we would almost keep him at the door because we don't want him to see what we've been doing. And lovingly, graciously, gently, he comes alongside. He says, I see it. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the sin, the corruption, the rebellion that has done this to my child. And he cleans it up for you. He's making you holy. Either way, if you believe in Jesus as King and Lord, then he is also your savior. He sets you free from those things that enslave and defile us. He wants to drive out those relics of your own kingdom, driving out the sin and the shame of our past, driving out the fear and the darkness in our lives, driving out oppression and driving out Satan and the works of the enemy and driving out death. He is driving out death from his creation. If you receive him, you are a temple of his Holy Spirit and he's making you holy. And he gives you this new life. And as God's church, we cry out, Hosanna. 
Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Save us, Jesus. And he has, and he does, and he will. And we have no one else to honor or to glorify or to praise than the name of Jesus. And so with confidence, church, let's open our lives, our hearts to him, knowing that things will change, but knowing that he is making us new, knowing that he is making us like him, knowing that he is making you holy. Let's invite him into our lives, our church, our community. Whatever you're here for, I don't know if this is for all of you or for one of you. Whatever you're here for, I promise you Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than you've been told. Jesus is better than the things you've been told are greater than Jesus. It's not. They're not. Just give him a chance. He rides in. He loves you. He changes everything. He's making you new. He loves you. Don't run. Run to him, not from him. He's running to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know where we're at. You know how we feel about Jesus. You know those areas in our lives where all of us, every single one of us, none of us is exempt. Where we hide those things away in the corner. We might not be living our lives for the glory of something else, but we've got corners. We've got areas, little shrines of our pride, little shrines of our ego, little shrines of the the things that we want people to see about us. God, we just let go of that. We open our hands. We say, take it. God, I don't want people to see me in my life. I want people to see you. God, we don't want people to see us in the church. We want people to see you. Jesus, you are king. You are enthroned in the praises of your people. You are enthroned over reality Carpinteria. You are enthroned over the city of Carpinteria, the coastlands and the nations. You are King Jesus. And we give our lives to you, submit ourselves to you, knowing that you sacrificed yourself for us. You are a king, but you are not above being a servant. We have been saved by our King. And so all of our lives are for all, are all for Jesus. Pray that you would do that work in us that only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.